I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. And welcome back to the show. I am your host, Dan, for this episode. And I am joined today by a special guest who, uh, her name is Danielle. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Danielle works as a domestic violence victim legal advocate at the Domestic Harmony Shelter in Hillsdale, Michigan. So not too far from us. Uh, does obviously work in this uh, in in this situation, in this world of domestic violence and abuse prevention, et cetera, and helping supporting survivors. But also, Danielle has uh, a personal perspective. Danielle, if you could a little bit tell us and share with the listeners how it is that you got into this work and what you do. So a couple people that actually knew of my story and my experiences, um, they actually kept um, telling me to apply for this job because it was open and the position had been posted on Facebook because they didn't have anybody in it for a while. Um, And I just kept telling them, no, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I don't want to, like, I can't handle that Um, because it's just a lot of work. And, you know, I had a new baby and things like that. Um, But it was specifically my oldest son's teacher. Um, She, because she was one of the few ones that actually knew everything that had happened to me and my kids. She was the one that was the most persistent. She's like, Nope, you got to do it. You really need to do it. You'd help so many people, especially from your perspective. And so I caved and I applied to the job and I was like, yeah, like, I'm not going to get it. It's okay. But at least I can say I applied, like, it's fine. And then next thing I know, I went to the interview, I walked out and a couple of days later, they called me. They're like, so when can you start? And I was like, Oh, well, I guess this week. <laughs> so what does, so, well, I, I want to get back to your perspective and your story here in a minute, but what is a domestic violence victim legal advocate do? Oh, so I um, handle PPOs for clients. Um, I work with residential clients and non-residential clients. So people that are in the shelter, or people that call us because they need assistance. Um, I work with the prosecuting attorney's office and make sure that the victim is heard and that like their side of it is heard and that their feelings are, you know, put into play when it comes to the court case, um, or at least as much as what we can, because we know that the law is more black and white than emotional. Um, but I try to make sure that their voice is heard. Um, I work with the jail um, as far as like finding things out and like um, making sure that PPOs get served. I work with the clerk's office and the judges and things like that. Um, I do extensive safety planning. I help with no contact orders. Um, there's like a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it, but literally it's the, like the majority of it is PPO safety planning and making sure people feel safe. Gotcha. 
Well, thank you for the work that you do for your folks in Hillsdale there. Um, so, so let's go back then that teacher knew your story. You had a unique perspective. Um, share with us, if you would, what you're comfortable about your story, if you would. Yeah. So I had never like known what a good relationship was. Um, my biological father was not the nicest to my mom growing up. Um, you know, and so having three sisters and my brother, we just kind of assumed that the relationship you were in, you just made it work because that's what it was. Um, so when I got into a relationship that had red flags, even when I was in high school, um, I stayed in it. Um, I had been sexually abused in that relationship and physically abused and mentally and emotionally. Um, and honestly, as horrible as it sounds, because I didn't know any different. I didn't know I could tell anybody and I didn't know, you know, that that was a thing. Um, because, you know, you're younger and the schools don't tell you anything and your parents don't talk about it. Um, I thought that it was normal and it was just something that, you know, that I just kind of had to put up with. Um, so I didn't say anything that knew anything went through that relationship for quite a few years in high school and my first year in college. Um, and then when I finally had a miscarriage because I ended up pregnant from one of the sexual assaults. Um, I had a miscarriage in the middle of the night and he was up in Michigan. I went to school down in Indiana um, and I was telling about it because I was at college and he was just so mean to me. And he's like, well, the other girl wasn't telling me, I just need to leave the hospital and drive to Michigan so we could talk about it. And I'm like, I can't, like, I'm literally like, you know, having a miscarriage. Um, and it was really traumatic. Um, and then a couple weeks later, there was this guy on Facebook, cause I worked third shift at a hotel and he worked third shift and he was back here in Hillsdale. Um, he started talking to me on Facebook and because when you go through so long of not having any like positive attention, the fact that he was like complimenting me and being nice and things like that. Like I was like, Oh my God, like this is what it feels like to have somebody that's actually like kind to you. Um, and so him and I had started talking, um, and at first everything was fine. Like he came down to visit on um, down to Indiana when my friends and I had had a house party. And um, it, I mean, I had gone to class that day. Well, I'm sorry. I had worked that night at the hotel from midnight to 8 a.m. I had gone to class from 8.30 to four. And then he had come down for the house party and I was exhausted. And he knew that. And when they left, when he left in the morning, um, I had fallen asleep because I was, you know, just exhausted. And um, I woke up to over a hundred text messages and phone calls that first started out with saying like, you know, that I was wonderful and beautiful and it was so nice to meet me. But then it switched into the fact that I was a horrible person and I was just like every girl and I was probably out doing something and he regretted meeting me. But in my head, I was like, well, obviously like I did something wrong. Like I fell asleep because I was so conditioned to think that it was always my fault. Um, and so I woke up, I apologize. I tried to make things better. I took full responsibility, not even acknowledging the fact about what he had done or said. Um, and then from there we started dating and he wanted to move in down, you know, down to where I was staying at college and it was kind of forceful, but I didn't like, again, know that I had a choice to say no. Um, I just went with it and from there, the abuse just started and it continued on for years. Um, there was, again, a lot of sexual abuse and I ended up pregnant both times, um, both my boys. 
actually are from that. Um, and when I was pregnant with my first son, he was so abusive and would punch me in the stomach all the time and say he didn't want a kid anymore. And so my son actually is missing the middle part of his brain because of all that trauma that happened in utero. Um, they said it was just like winning the lottery, but a bad one. It wasn't until my second son almost died at three months old because he gave him 30 multiple rib fractures and a broken clavicle bone. Um, but they asked me like what other abuse had happened. And I told them about my pregnancies and stuff. And they're like, well, that's exactly why your son has his brain development issue. And it just kept continuing. Um, sorry. <laughs> Take your time. Um, so in my head, I didn't, and I know that most people always make comments that it sounds naive, but when you're working with abuse victims, I hear it a lot, how they don't think that the abuse that happens to the kid could be by the abuser, which is exactly what I thought, because they're so busy abusing you. Why would they turn on a kid? Um, so I tried to, you know, believe that it wasn't his fault about what happened to, you know, my second son. Um, it wasn't until the polygraph tests were like, I passed because our lawyer wanted us to do one just for them to have. Um, I had passed and it took him like four hours and the um, guy came out and was like, you guys need to talk. And so I realized that he really had done it. Um, but by then the kids had already been taken um, by CPS because of the fact that, you know, I took my son into the ER because he had coughed up blood and, um, you know, they found the 30 rib fractures. Mm. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, no, Danielle, please don't, don't be sorry. Take your time. Well, I cannot... <clears throat> begin to imagine what you're going through telling us and what you went through then I'm so sorry um so like I said I went to the hospital because I came home and there was blood in my son's bassinet and that's when they you know the doctors had done x-ray on his chest and I had to watch while an officer and a CPS worker came in and took my three-month-old from me and they told me to go home and get my other son and at the time, my abuser just like was so nonchalant. He's like, all right, like whatever, like we'll go. And I just, I still didn't know what to think or what to do. Um, but so everything that transpired between then and like the next year is like such a whirlwind still. Um, and I still have issues sometimes with like trying to figure out timelines. Um, which is something that I run into a lot with my clients and I have to tell them like, I get it. Like, it's okay. Like we'll figure it out. Um, so I had lost them when Jackson was three months old on the day. I got them back though, the day he turned six months old, because I went to every like CPS thing. I went to every single court hearing. I made sure I was always there and he never showed up for, I think maybe he attempted one time to go to a supervised visit, but that was it. Um, we had to let go of our house and everything like that because of trying to pay for attorneys. And so we had started actually staying with his mom and because I just didn't have a choice because my mom had my boys and I couldn't be around them. Um, so I genuinely didn't have anywhere to go. Um, while we were there, um, his mom had actually even walked in a couple of times when he had me by the throat and she still told me that it was my fault and that I needed to make things right with him. 
And so like there was the trauma like from his family and from him and it just felt like it was never ending. Um, and then when I did get my kids back because I did everything right and because they were going after him for um, child abuse charges, um, he had actually threatened to take the kids from me and that, um, sorry. Uh, take your time. Um, he threatened to take the kids from me and things and like, and I did because again, I was still intertwined in that relationship that when he said he wanted to say bye to them, I, you know, did it in a public location, but I let him see them one last time, which looking back, that would have not doing that would have saved me about another year of abuse. Um, but I did it because I was still so mentally intertwined in that relationship, even with all the abuse that happened. Because again, I still didn't feel like I had many options because, you know, the agencies weren't nice to me. CPS wasn't. Anybody else I worked with, they were just like so degrading to me because it had happened in the first place. And it was, of course, my fault is the way they made me feel. And so I felt like I just don't have, you know, I didn't have any support. So I was like, well, like, I don't have any choice. So I let him see him. And then he started taking pictures and saying that he was going to turn me into CPS again and that, you know, I had to leave with him and with the boys not tell anybody or he'd make sure that um, even if he went to jail, that I went to jail too and that the boys would be in foster care, which was like my biggest nightmare. And so I went with him back to Tennessee in hopes that like it would mean that I could keep them safe because um, at least they'd be with me. Um, but the abuse just kept getting worse um, and it just didn't stop. Um, and honestly, it wasn't until one night when I actually physically fought back that, he, that he's actually the one who took a bag and he left. And I ended up locking the door and making sure that he couldn't come back in. And so every time he would try to, I just wouldn't let him. It was the only like defense mechanism I had. And I think he was finally exhausted from like, you know, being in that relationship and he was already talking to other people. Um, and honestly, that's probably the only thing that saved me and the boys from having to be around him anymore. Um, and he ended up getting picked up at some point because they had the warrant out for him for second degree child abuse. Um, and I had to testify and he got put in prison and he's actually there now. Um, last year we had to fight for his parole cause he was going to get out and we did win. So he's in there for another year, but starting next month, we have to start fighting all over again. So I have to fight every single year for the next five years. Um, but every time I fight, like his mom will start stalking us and harassing us. And like everywhere we've lived, like she finds out and she starts driving by and she'll put letters in the mailbox. And I mean, I opened up a store. I mean, half the time, sometimes I don't feel safe here, even though it's a safe place for other people because she'll drive by. The abuse continues on long past just him. Yeah. And then you have to keep fighting and I, I cannot imagine the exhaustion that that brings. Um, wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it's amazing though. Cause like I met my now husband, um, and he's just been so supportive since I first met him and he actually adopted the boys. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's nice. Cause like, I know that now he'll never have access to them because he did, he actually signed off his rights before he went to prison. Cause he said that he 
he thought that if he signed off his rights that he couldn't get charged for child abuse. So of course I went along with it because I wanted him to, you know, mm, sign yeah. off his rights. I'm like, yeah, it makes total sense. Do that. Um, which honestly saved me a lot because now he doesn't have rights to them. And now my husband did adopt them. Mm. Um, so, sounds like having that, that support system now is part of maybe keeping you strong and able to, <laughs> and, and then able to give to others then. I mean, that's, to me, like everything that you went through, I wish that you didn't go through. You know, this isn't one of those cases of, well, you went through it so you can help others. Like that's not, you, yeah. you shouldn't have to ever go through that. Yeah. The fact that you can turn that into helping others is so amazing. Um, you, men- you, you mentioned the store, you've, you've opened up a storefront and yeah. you 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 give you you make a safe place for others. What what does that do for others? What do you do at that at that storefront? So I actually um, all this started about two years ago when I had a couple people that asked for my story. Um, when I finally started coming out about it, and I started coming out about it because of the stalking and harassment from his family, and I was just kind of I was just exhausted and sick of hiding, and I was sick of you know them being able to spread lies. Um, so maybe more so of like me starting that was because I was just sick of not standing up for myself about that, which nobody should even have to try to like defend themselves on that. Um, but I felt like I had to, and I had about 10 people that asked for my story. So like written down so they could help other people. Um, and like, because they had people where like their story reminded them of mine. And so I actually wrote it out. Um, It's less than 100 pages, and it's definitely not grammatically correct, which is sad because I'm a grammar Nazi. Um, (laughs) But I wrote it so quickly, stuff that I can remember, and I pulled old journal entries that I had found. um, But I just, I couldn't read it again after I wrote it. And I only expected to go to 10 people, so it was fine. Um, But then it, like, blew up. And I've sold over 500 copies of it and I've shipped to the UK and to Austria and everything like that. Um, so it kind of makes me cringe though. Every time I send one out, cause I'm like, I just want to edit it, but I'm like, Nope, I can't cause it's raw. We're just going to leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote a second book, which is cause the first one's called, it's not your fault. The second one is rising from the ashes only human. Cause, um, I wrote about like what I've done since then to like, try to overcome it and like to work on things with my kids. Um, And so that was the second one, which sold just as many, if not more than the first one. And then um, I released a third book, which is called Survivor Strong. And it was actually 34 women from my community that wanted to share their story, but needed to be able to share it safely. So I made it so they could. I had them all write out their stories from their perspectives and I took it and I edited stuff. And that's what the third book is about, is it's about tons of different types of abusive people's stories and how they wanted to share it. Um, so I felt like that was really empowering. And then people kept talking about the fact they wanted like a safe place to go because I never kept the proceeds from any of my books or anything. I took those and like if I knew somebody was trying to move to get out or if I knew somebody like just needed help, those proceeds would go to them. Um, and I took the proceeds to buy more books and send those books for free to shelters. Like I've sent them to California and everywhere. Um, so from there, I was like, you know, it'd be nice to have a physical location. So I, you know, got a physical location, um, 
I always wanted to have a place where people could write something inspirational. So there's a big black board or like a big chalkboard wall. And it's amazing because I'm staying in my store now and I'm looking at it and looking at what everybody's written like to somebody else. It's amazing. <laughs> Cause um, you know, people write like you matter, love yourself first, um, use your voice, things like that. And it's just amazing. Um, so here at the store, like we have that so people can come and write something. I sell all three books. Um, I sell self-defense kits, pepper spray. Um, there's t-shirts. There's a sunflower corner with tons of sunflower items because sunflowers are really powerful, you know, and when sunflowers, you know, don't have sunshine out, they look to each other, which I think is really empowering for, you know, survivors to be able to look to each other. If they don't have that, you know, sunlight yet in their life. Mm. Um, and then there's like other like boutique stuff because it just helps, you know, get more money into it. Um, but like I said, I mean, we do self-defense classes. We did cardio drumming for a while um, that just ended, but hopefully we'll pick it back up because cardio drumming, um, I started that when I felt like I had a lot of aggression in my life because um, I was still so angry and I didn't have any way to get it out. Um, mm. So cardio drumming helps you, you know, use drumsticks and you beat on a ball, um, yeah. but you work out and it's, but it's like empowering. People are like, yeah, I feel kind of silly when I do. I'm like, but it's so like releasing though. Um, so it's nice. And like, we've had like little get togethers here and like, you know, it's just nice. Cause like, it's kind of like a safe space where somebody wants to come in and share their story. And I've had people that have come in are like, I listened to you speak. Like you gave me the courage to leave my relationship. And it's just amazing to see that. Which is probably all why, uh, the Hillsdale daily news, uh, recognize all these efforts with an award last year, the community's person of the year. So congratulations on that. Thank you. I didn't know you knew about that. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I, and like, and like, it, it's, it's amazing. Obviously that's not why you do what you do, but how does it feel to have that kind of recognition that, you know, you're making a difference for the community to see that not, not just one person, but the whole community to say, here's someone who's doing that. How does that feel? amazing I didn't even know that that was a thing I knew that every single year like they voted like best you know pub best boutique best you know dog groomers things like that I didn't know they voted a best person um, <laughs> and you have to actually get nominated by a certain amount of people to even get that um, and then people vote and so the fact that like I got nominated by people to even get that like it was just I literally was like in tears um, yeah. and my husband though he's so supportive because there's been so many articles written about me um, that at home, there's actually a wall by my desk and he always makes sure that, like that all my articles are up on there. He, you know, sometimes like if I'm not gonna lie, I feel like really down that day and I'm like, I don't really feel like I deserve it. Cause like, I haven't helped anybody lately because I'm overwhelmed with my stuff. Um, you know, I may just take it down just cause like, I can't really look at it right then. Cause it just makes me feel really overwhelmed. And my husband's the first one to like hurry up and put it back. He's like, no, you need to be proud of that. Like you need to keep that up. And I'm like, I love you, <laughs> <laughs> man. That gosh, Danielle, that gets me. What a that's that's beautiful. So to me, your story, as raw as it is, as difficult as it is to tell, as continuing as it is, these on on the other side, and there's no true other side, I believe, and I hear yes. it in your story, right? But there is kind of this journey, and this journey that you're on right now. There's hope. There is some, there is healing, there's still fight, but there's healing, there's hope, there's beautiful things going on. Um, yeah. And that's an inspiration. That's, that's amazing. 
what what encouragement can you give to those who are listening who may see themselves in your story? What kind of encouragement do you give to those survivors? Don't doubt yourself that you matter. Um, and surround yourself around people that actually like uplift you because it is hard because first off, it's hard to trust people to like want to have a support system and allow people to be there for you. But, and it is, well, first off, like I said, it's hard to trust people, but then sometimes you trust somebody and they use what you've gone through against you, which has happened to me recently. And it's just mortifying. Um, but at the end of the day, I sit there and I'm like, okay, so yes, that was one person that, you know, wasn't the best person in my life, but because I'm open about what I've gone through and because I'm never going to stop fighting back now that I have that strength. Um, I have so many people that surround me that just uplift me and that, you know, we're still there for me and nobody can be there for you until you ask for help, which is the hardest step is to ask for help, but you have to, because if you don't, nobody's going to know to help you. Mm -hmm. And honestly, usually the best thing is to reach out to another survivor and it's not anything bad against people who haven't been through abuse, but a lot of times people aren't trauma informed and they don't know the best way to respond. And they're like, oh, like you'll be fine or oh, it'll get better. But that's not things that survivors want to hear. They just want to hear that somebody's there for them. So reaching out to another survivor, I know helped me in the past because I was able to find people that understood my anxiety on days or the days when I still couldn't get out of bed, you know, because like last week I called into work on Thursday because I just felt so overwhelmed with everything with my abusers feeling and like I couldn't even get out of bed. And so like, it never ends. You just have to be able to ask for that help. Hmm. Thank you for that. So speaking, so you said a lot of us are not trauma informed if we haven't been through it, if we like this, yeah. where, where can we go learn about becoming better trauma informed so that even if we haven't been through that situation, we can at least be there for folks. I mean, the number one thing to even just trying to like understand trauma is just to listen. If somebody's like talking to you about their story, don't just be like, yeah, I get that. Like I've been through something similar. Like that's like probably the worst thing you can say, which sounds bad because most people think that's just like you acknowledging what they've gone through, but really they just want somebody to like fully just listen and say, wow, that's not okay. Um, like my website, daniellecrosby.com, I have like do's and don'ts um, in the information section about ways to like approach things with people. And usually if you get on of like a lot of like domestic violence shelters, Facebook pages or websites, they have a lot of good information that you can just read through and even already start to feel comfortable. Um, now, another thing you said that really piqued my interest, I, I wrote down in my notes here, um, you <laughs> felt you, you felt like agencies and other and like um, CPS ma yeah. that it was your, made you feel like it was your fault. Yeah. Now my, my first thought is even, even agencies, those who are supposed yeah. to be helping you made you feel like it was your fault. That is so sad. And I know. So I will say the only place that didn't make me feel like it was my fault was a shelter down in Tennessee when I was down there. That's the only place that actually made me feel like I had options or had a voice. How can we <laughs> ensure that, that we're not doing that to survivors? How can we ensure that we're not making them feel like it's their fault. Honestly, I feel like agencies just need better training and it's never a bash. Like, cause people mostly take offense when I say that. And I'm like, but that's so not a bash. Like, because it's just how agencies are built. A lot of agencies, like they just see the black and white version. Just like I said before, like the law is black and white. It's not emotional. But when you have domestic violence, it is an emotional topic. It's all gray. It's not black and white. And 
if agencies would like train people better on that or just, you know, like acknowledge the fact that like a lot of times victims don't think they have an out because I mean, I had agencies where they're like, oh, well, you have, you know, a mom that talks to you because she took your kids in or a sister that does like, why didn't you talk to them? And I'm like, because it's embarrassing. Who wants to sit there and tell their family members that they're getting the crap beat out of them or have been sexually assaulted because it's just like that fear of judgment, no matter how open in your family is. And so it's so hard because you have to make sure that, you know, these agencies, again, it's not anything bad. It's just how they're like, you know, stapled, um, that they actually see the gray in areas, that it's not just black and white to them. Because again, when you have a survivor and they feel like they don't have options, everything in their life is gray. Nothing's black and white because they can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. Great advice and feedback. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your story today and for giving such great advice and insight. Um, you mentioned your website, daniellecrosby.com. Um, yep. Is that where we can go for the books, for connections, yeah. for stories? Yeah. Yep, for everything. And I mean, if it's okay, can I, like, I just want to yeah. say like one last thing, like one big thing is that if you have kids, <clears throat> I know that that's actually usually when it's harder to get out. But because of what happened to my kids, I'm always the first one to say, like, it, you know, even if you have kids, like, you have to be able to find a way out or find somebody that can help you out. Because we all know that when somebody's trying to leave, that's actually the most dangerous time. Um, that's usually when a lot of the, you know, deaths happen is when somebody's actually standing up and trying to get out. But like with my kids, because I didn't get out when I should my oldest, because he's missing that middle part of his brain, you know, like he has developmental issues and he's always going to be behind in areas. He's extremely smart and has the biggest heart, but he is always going to have those issues in life that I'm going to have to try to help him with. And that will never end. And my son who almost died because of him, he has so much anger in his like heart. Like he's got like the biggest heart, but he's got so much anger. and He doesn't understand where it comes from because his body is just held in that trauma that that's mean that I'm going to work with him on the rest of his life too. So it's not even just healing for us. Like we have to get our kids out. Mm. Thank you for that as well. Uh, guys, just, I can't thank you enough. You keep, you keep giving and it's so, <laughs> such a, I appreciate it so much. Our listeners will get so much out of this. Um, that was a great final thought. Do you have any final, final thoughts before we wrap <laughs> it up? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, the biggest thing is that you just, you just have to love yourself. And I know people always make comments that like, it's not fair to tell somebody that like, they have to love themselves to get out, but like, really they, they kind of do. And again, I know that there's a lot of people that don't feel that way and that's completely fine. But being a survivor, like I knew that because I didn't know how to love myself because of everything I had gone through, that was my biggest obstacle that I didn't know what love actually was. So I just took what I got. And we have to be able to like understand what that is and what a healthy relationship is. And like I said, so many agencies have stuff on their websites about like what a healthy relationship is and isn't. And that's really what we have to look at. Danielle, thank you so much for being a part of it. Listeners, go to daniellecrosby.com um, and look for Danielle in the news because you're doing some amazing work. <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To I'm not in an abusive relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023.
we are here to walk alongside you. If you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.